0: Good morning. Ethics in the United States Supreme Court, Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg on Trump, security and smoke shops, the 50th anniversary of the New York City Pop Parade, and nuclear waste from New York to New Mexico. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRianzo with the news for April 30th, 2023. Earlier this month, ProPublica published an investigation into the financial relationship between United States Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and billionaire real estate mogul Harlan Crow. According to the report, for the past 20 years, Justice Thomas has been treated to luxury vacations and free air travel paid for by Crow, without disclosing the gifts as required by a Watergate-era law. The vacations included far-flung trips on Crowe's luxury yacht, flights on his private jet, and stays at his private luxury resort in upstate New York. Last week, Massachusetts Democrat Senator Ed Markey called for Thomas to resign.
1: I will say what needs to be said. Clarence Thomas should resign from the Supreme Court of the United States. His reputation is unsalvageable. It is evident that he cannot judge right from wrong. So why should he be judging the country's most important cases on its highest court?
0: Massachusetts Democrat Senator Ed Markey. While ethics laws require judges disclose gifts, the Supreme Court is in an unusual position. As a co-equal branch of government, the Congress and executive branches are loath to take action that might hinder the court's independence. Retired judge and constitutional law professor Bill Blum says there's no similar case involving the Supreme Court for the last century, although in a bipartisan move 50 years ago, Justice Abe Fortas had to resign over a much smaller ethics issue.
2: The Supreme Court has no binding code of ethics, which means that unlike every other governmental entity in the United States, it is essentially free to operate as it sees fit without any regulatory oversight. And that is a most unfortunate situation because Supreme Court justices, even the best of them, are ordinary people. In the last analysis and um, people sometimes get into conflicts of situations where they have conflicts of interest and they need to have uh, some kind of oversight and supervision and when there is none and you have someone like Clarence Thomas who year after year doesn't disclose all of his financial interests and then when he's um, Discovered that those failures are discovered. He refiles his ethics statements every year. Judges, along with all other high-ranking federal officials, have to file these financial disclosures, and um, he gives some sort of lame excuse after one after another, and he just gets away with it. And there is nothing that can be done unless Congress by legislation forces the Supreme Court to abide by the judicial code of ethics that applies to every other federal judge except the Supreme Court. And that's uh, not likely to happen, however.
0: How is it that the Supreme Court escaped uh, something as basic as that something you would take for granted would exist? Because the Supreme
2: Court sits atop a co-equal branch of government, and as far as I can tell, it takes the position that the other branches of government— don't have the right to supervise it as an institution so you're left with things like uh, the ethics and government act which requires all the judges to make their financial disclosures and it's possible for the attorney general to uh, initiate a civil action or even a criminal action if someone falsifies those statements that's not likely to happen and congress as an institution, has not had the fortitude to say to the court, we're passing this, now it's up to you to abide by it and just see what John Roberts and his crew do next. They may decide that that's an unconstitutional act. We have a situation where, in in the United States where we have judicial supremacy, and I don't think that was the design the Founding Fathers had in mind when they created three separate but equal branches of government.
0: Has this happened in the past where it turned out that a Supreme Court justice had a billionaire a private backer?
2: I don't know of anything like this, ever. The Ethics in Government Act only was passed in 1978, so man, I, I, I can't say that nothing like this ever happened.
0: When the robber barons were pouring money into uh, everything and you know, selling awesome. defective weapons to the that's- army and things like that.
2: All of that is a possibility to go back to the Teapot Dome scandal, but I know of no modern-day equivalent uh, to this. Abe Fortas, who was a a Democrat-appointed justice, had to resign from the Supreme Court because uh, both Republicans and Democrats uh, wanted him to go, and he had relatively minor financial disclosure issues.
0: What's the worst that could happen in a situation like this?
2: If you look at Clarence Thomas's friend... Harlan Crowe, the Republican billionaire. He's not just someone who has a lot of money and is now uh, leading the good life, going on cruises on a super yacht uh, in Indonesia. He's somebody who's very active in Republican politics through um, uh, the American Enterprise Institute and other uh, entities, and he uh, and his organizations have litigation before the Supreme Court Hard to say whether this is actually a quid pro quo with Clarence Thomas because I don't think that Clarence Thomas would.
0: Um, that it's legal for a Supreme Court justice to engage in a quid pro quo this for that deal.
2: That would be bribery. But proving <laughs> that it's a quid pro quo rather than just your friend treating you nicely because he loves you so much is difficult in a court of law. For purposes of the work that judges do, you want not only to avoid bias, actual bias, but the appearance of bias. And when you have somebody treating you to trips and to buying your mother's home and then letting her live there rent free there afterwards, you really have to wonder whether or not this justice is free of conflicts. The Supreme Court already has a big legitimacy crisis facing it because of its... uh, seemingly partisan decisions. This only makes that crisis exponentially worse. So this is a real bad situation.
0: My understanding is when the Trail of Tears occurred and the Cherokee people were forced, John Jay and the Supreme Court overruled President Andrew Jackson at the time and said he could not remove the Indians and he just ignored the Supreme Court. Are we going back to those days? Is that what's going to have to happen in the end?
2: You're raising a question of nullification, which is a very serious, serious nuclear option for the executive branch. If the Supreme Court becomes so out of touch with the needs, interests and values of the vast majority of the public, to what extent can the public strike back to return the court to some kind of political balance? I don't know that we've gotten to that point yet, but that's an option now that's being discussed, whereas in the past it was only ultra-right conservatives who were raising that during the civil rights period,
0: Right. if you go back into the recent past. So this, this this is a very serious inflection point. The Supreme Court is acting like uh, like an emperor. It's acting like a super legislature. You have a situation where Congress is
2: dysfunctional. It's dysfunctional because of the way that the House is gerrymandered, the Senate is skewed in favor of small rural states. They don't enact the kind of legislation that the country needs, and the Supreme Court then steps into the void. But because of the imbalance on the court, it's stepping into that void on behalf of the Republican Party and its more reactionary
0: donors and um matthew kaczmarek the texas judge who um, made this sort of amazing ruling really incredible ruling that went way over the top in order to prevent people from getting the abortion drug
2: that's right this is an outrageous act it's not all that um clear that federal law allows a single federal district judge to issue a nationwide injunction. There's some controversy about that. And in the Supreme Court cases dealing with such acts, there's, there's, there's some ambiguity. Justices debate whether or not we should allow this to happen. What has happened with the abortion drug is that the forced abortion movement, I don't call it the right to life movement anymore. It's a forced birth movement. So that's a much more apt description forum shopped in an extreme way to bring this case before Kaczmarek, who is a known forced birth advocate and get the ruling that they chose, believing that they would get a national injunction from this guy. Now that's exactly what they got again, outrageous. Now the case is before the Supreme court and the Supreme court is not as crazy as Kaczmarek yet. Thank goodness for that. So the court stayed his, his ruling and stayed the ruling of the Fifth Circuit, which is the appellate court that sits above Kaczmarek, but sent the case back to the Fifth Circuit, which—and we don't know what, exactly what the Fifth Circuit's going to do. It may send the case back to Kaczmarek. But we have a powder keg down there in Arlington, Texas, which is where I believe he sits, or Amar- so, some tiny town. You talk about a super legislature. This guy is a one-man wrecking ball. And he's been let loose on the country by virtue of the kind of judicial supremacy that we have at this point in time.
0: We've seen a move now in Manhattan, at least so far, to prosecute a former president of the United States, and we've seen the reaction to that, and it must be scary. I mean, they had to really... I've never heard of a, a district attorney in Manhattan you know, having to worry. His you power know, has been diminished in a weird way.
2: What I've written recently for truth dig the progressive and other places is that in order to change the judicial system we need a political movement that makes the court one of the top agenda items when people go to the polls we have to be, we have to understand the consequences of our votes and we have to get our representatives in congress motivated to take action to make the judiciary more responsive to the people. That doesn't mean we want to end judicial independence. We don't want to do that. But what we have now is not judicial independence. We have the judiciary becoming an arm of the Republican Party. And that is not a place where we want to be.
0: Retired judge and constitutional law professor Bill Blum And New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in a recent interview says if Thomas wants a life of luxury, he knows what to do.
3: Supreme Court justices are required if they are receiving money from people. They shouldn't even be receiving money from people. This is why we pay salaries to public servants. Mm -hmm. And if they want to live that kind of lifestyle, then they can resign from the court. They can retire.
0: Subsequently, ProPublica reports at least one incident where the Crow real estate company bought properties in Savannah, Georgia that belonged to Thomas and his family. Crow's company paid $133,000. Despite a disclosure law requiring justices to report real estate sales, Thomas never disclosed the sale. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's office has asked a judge to issue an order prohibiting former President Donald Trump from publicly discussing evidence turned over to his lawyers. The DA's office wrote the defendant is at risk of inappropriately using the disclosed material. Earlier this month, 34 felony charges were unsealed against Trump. At the heart of the charges are accusations the former president covered up a $130,000 hush money payment to porn star Stormy Daniels. Since the indictments became public, GOP members of Congress have been battling Bragg's office. House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan has persistently attacked Bragg, including a committee hearing held in New York City that blamed Bragg for an alleged jump in crime. On Thursday, City Council Member Eric Botcher questioned Bragg about the House actions.
1: You know, when I was at the City Council uh, you know one of the cases I argued before our state's you know top court was a separation of powers case it was an underlying law was a, a labor law and it was who had the authority to change kind of a labor procedure the executive the mayor or the city council so it's a classic separation of powers we argued we prevailed that the city council had the power and so that's what's here it's the sort of fundamental issues of, of branches of governments that have different roles. The legislature makes laws. The executive here, district attorney's office enforces laws. And then we also have core uh, bedrock issues of federalism. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the federal uh, legislative branch, uh, you know, trying to uh, intervene in an individual ongoing criminal prosecution. You know, that's something that I think is a proposition that is anathema to government principles of comedy, sovereignty, and federalism. And it's something that we cannot countenance.
0: Bragg has also been at the receiving end of numerous angry letters, some containing violent threats. At least two contain a menacing but harmless white powder. But Bragg says he's got the best security in the world.
1: We really are grateful to the NYPD. Uh, The NYPD has been phenomenal. In terms of office safety, community safety, my safety, we are prepared for this kind of thing. Have deep expertise. We've been relying on them, and I don't think a ton about my personal safety. Because I know that they are the best at doing this. I do worry as a employer, and we have more than fifteen hundred people who work at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, and they're coming and going throughout Lower Manhattan. And we worry about the neighborhood. We think about and thoughtful and sober about it, given the NYPD's expertise and preparation and all they've done. It's not something that I'm spending a lot of time thinking on. We certainly want to continue to do all of, and we are continuing to do all of our important work from gun prosecutions to hate crimes to domestic violence and want to be clear that while we will not ignore threats, we're not going to be deterred and we're going to continue to do all of our work on all of our cases. Meanwhile,
0: Bragg has sued Jordan to block GOP demands that witnesses from Bragg's office testify before Congress. Bragg says federal lawmakers have no place in a local matter. And in more local news, last month, New York Governor Kathy Hochul introduced new legislation slapping unlicensed cannabis shops in the state with a $10,000 a day fine for selling pot. The fines could be as much as $200,000 for selling pot from out of state. But lawyers say there are too many legal loopholes for Hochul's plan to work because most of the shops are owned by limited liability companies or corporations. But the legal hurdles didn't dissuade D.A. Bragg, who says the unlicensed shops are siphoning tax money and exposing buyers to unregulated weed.
1: You said they're operating completely outside of the law. I've got three primary concerns. One is youth sales. We see with the branding of the product, and in fact, I was looking at a picture earlier today—a photo of um, Sweet Tooth on West Fourth. It looks like the. Frozen yogurt stores that were quite popular a few years ago with teens. Not just the packaging of the product, now it's the packaging of the entire store. I worry about the youth sales. It's something my office is focused on and, and coordinating and looking at with the with the sheriff's office. I also worry about everyone's health who goes in. Right, if you go to the liquor store, you know that they've got a permit. You know that what you're being sold is a brand that you know you you know and you trust the regulatory regime, you don't have that assurance. You go into these stores, which the average consumer doesn't know whether it's regulated or not regulated, operating inside the law or not. And because it's so open and notorious is that the signs are, you know, I've talked to some friends just sort of an unofficial survey. They would think it's lawful because it's just sitting there. No one's closed it down yet. The youth sales and then the fact that the products may be adulterated are significant concerns. And as you know, Underpinning the law is a social equity principle that the folks who are supposed to get the licenses are ones who have been harmed by uh, marijuana enforcement strategies of the past. So adding insult to injury, you have people who, who are having licenses and we have some stores with licenses in Manhattan being undercut. By people who, some of whom are targeting use and some of whom, you know, we don't know what's, what people are putting into their bodies. So it's a significant issue. We we sent letters when we were standing together. We announced we sent letters to the over 400, um, you know, cannabis stores putting on, on notice that under the law, DA's office can stand into the shoes of a commercial landlord and evict a commercial tenant like a smoke shop, which is showing uh, that they're operating outside of the law. So we're following up on that. We're also, you know, looking at other criminal tools uh, where there's tax evasion or money laundering and other things like that as well. And I know the sheriff's, you know, hard at work doing seizures. It's a significant, significant issue. I mean, over 400 in Manhattan.
4: You send a letter to the business saying that you're selling this product. If you don't stop, then we will pursue eviction proceedings. Is that
1: it? that's exactly it look it is a tool that's available to us and a tool that that we will use make no mistake about it and you you were talking at the front about kind of we need more enforcement teeth the law needs more enforcement teeth we will do the civil evictions and i think that will will have an effect but we need more teeth in the enforcement of this and it's not just i'll just add to it it's not just the cannabis itself during a recent inspection just last week, you know, our, our law enforcement partners discovered an illegal loaded gun and fentanyl. We're going to be pursuing charges rising out of that. And we also see these are you know, all cash businesses. So we see robberies and, and there's some magnets for other kind of kind of violent conduct. So we're, we're really trying to sound alarm, or, you know, trying to be creative with the commercial you know, evictions, but also, you know, where there's a seizure or something like an illegal loaded gun and fentanyl using our traditional tools, and then also, as I said, kind of the money laundering, taxation. Throughout my career, somehow I had to say, you, you kind of follow the money and it will lead you to the folks who are the most culpable. You hold them accountable, then you can get some inter- enduring benefits. I've done that kind of time and time again throughout my career. And so we're trying to follow that strategy here as well.
0: Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. And in more cannabis news, Saturday, May 6th, marks the 50th anniversary of New York's iconic marijuana legalization parade. The first brought tokers up from Washington Square to Central Park in 1973. Saturday's march is expected to be a hit, with a giant inflatable joint, hip-hop music, and other smoking entertainment, as well as speeches. Last year, Senator Chuck Schumer and Attorney General Letitia James attended to mark the state's legalization of muggles. One of the organizers of the Pop Parade is Steve Bloom, editor of the Celeb Stoner website. He spoke with the news on Thursday.
5: The event started in 1973, as best as we know. So we're calling this the 50th anniversary. We're one of the last of the legacy events. There's the hash bash, the harvest in Madison, Hashbash in Ann Arbor. If they still run the Smoking in D.C. on July 4th, not much of us left. We're the last, and you know we're a survivor. Having come out of legalization two years ago in New York, what do we do? We've been protesting for almost 50 years. Now we won, essentially. The idea was to kind of turn it around to more of a celebration of cannabis, educational, informative, musical, cultural, and we are teaming up this year with the city of New York cannabis NYC organization which is an agency within new york and they're teaming up with us to run the event
0: over 400 smoke shops selling marijuana openly all over new york city do you find that's a conflict between the roots of your event and teaming up with the city now and if not why not
5: there's a reality that the legal stores need to have an opportunity to succeed and you have hundreds of illegal stores underselling is going to make it kind of hard. They have to find some way to deal with this. That's not my job. They will deal with it. But the good news is they're not enforcing heavily. There's no heavy policing going on. They are going into some stores and shutting them down based on what they have there, too much inventory. This industry, legal industry, popped up post-legalization, and it's a good opportunity for people, but they have to realize that it is illegal. It just is. I mean, you can't open up an illegal liquor store without any kind of licensing, can you? you can't sell cigarettes with any kind of licensing. All these companies are operating illegally. I'm not against them, but they have to you know, understand the reality of it is that what they're doing is illegal.
0: i heard it said marijuana is sort of legal. Even though it is on the books legal, there's so many. There's still quite a ways to go. No, we're very legal.
5: Quite a ways to go is just to build the industry in New York like they've built in other states. It takes years. New York is doing it differently. They're giving equity the first opportunity. People who were disadvantaged, harmed by the drug war, they get in first. I think it's great. The other companies, the bigger companies will get their opportunities down the road. They're filling, they wanna get in right away. I don't favor that suit. I favor the equity approach being taken in New York. If it's a slow rollout, so what? How is that harming anybody? At the same time, people can go wherever they want. Right now, until they shut down or somehow or other gradually Phase out all these stores all over New York. They probably could never phase them all out. Certainly, you're not going to really want them to be next to the legal store. It's not fair to the legal store to have one down the block. What's fair is fair. But as long as they're not enforcing heavily, they're not arresting, there's a handful of arrests that have happened. I think they've gone to a couple of those stores where they've done a raid and they maybe found somebody with a warrant or something. I don't know the, all the situations.
0: In one store, they found a loaded gun. I mean, it's actually dangerous to have a store you with know, cash.
5: mind, there was a store that was shut down recently at a confiscation. They reopened, by the way. they were too close to a school, so nobody's following any rules. They don't care because they are illegal. They don't seem to think they have to follow any rules. Right. I mean, you know, I'm not a stickler for rules, but. Come on. I mean, everybody knows what they're doing is illegal. A lot of people have just taken their business from their homes into these stores and they're selling in stores and it's a better opportunity for them because they get more traffic.
0: Radical lawyers, Stanley Cohen, lawyers I know who are involved in the pot, pretty much say what you're saying. And they're radicals. I mean, these are people who defended like major cannabis smuggling operations by the uh, Mohawk Indians on the border and stuff like that.
5: The The Native tribes have autonomy in New York State, which is great. So they're doing their thing upstate. I asked Chris Alexander, who heads the Office of Cannabis Management, I asked a question at a gather event where he was at, and I said, there was a new store that opened up on Mohawk Nation. Is anything to do with what you're doing in the States? And that's totally for the governor's office. So they don't even handle that. They're on their own. They're autonomous up there.
0: What about the legacy dealers who, and also the fact that, I think, to be honest with you, no matter how many stores are out there, whatever they do as far as uh, stores, the majority of sales are going to be as they always were, by somebody you know who you drop a call to and they come over, like you just said.
5: I agree. Nothing is really stopping that. The city doesn't like the stores. They don't really care if people are selling between each other. What are they going to do, come to your house and stop that? They don't care even about delivery services. I mean, they'd rather people buy legal leads, obviously, but they don't like them buying it from the stores. If you buy it from your buddy, that's one thing, <laughs> but you go to a store that's competing with the legal stores is another. This will work itself out, but I think people are a little worked up into a tizzy over this in New York and it's not such a big deal. Right. At least they say it's a bad rollout, it's too slow, it's allowed this spread of all these stores. Some of it through, but they're really trying to do it right by giving an opportunity to others who wouldn't otherwise have it. And I think it's great. It's an experiment. Okay. Let's see if it works in New York.
0: Tell us a little bit about what to expect on,
4: uh, on the well, 6th. Well,
5: we're still booking, like, the names. Last year we had Chuck Humor, and the last two years we had Schumer. so I'm hoping Chuck comes back. We're going to have Dead Press, the hip-hop group. They're going to be our headliner. Uh, we're going to have Dr. Mr. Puffington and a few other artists there, Baba Israel. A bunch of speakers. We have a couple of panel discussions during the day at Union Square. Obviously we have a parade that's going to be kicking off from Greeley Square at 12 o'clock. We're going to have some floats this year, which we haven't had in years, courtesy of Cannabis NYC, which is going to be great. We're going to have a little more expanded room in the park to do a few more things. We've a lot of booths and tables which we've never had in the past with the help of New York City. So we can do these things that they kind of have discouraged trust from doing in the past, having a lot of tables and booths and having a big stage. and They wanted us to kind of keep a small event and we wanted to rebuild event after COVID. And thanks to the city of New York, We were going to have a rebuilt event. It's going to be a great event
0: on May 6th. Please come out. Under Giuliani, the police attacked it and arrested three, four, five hundred people, children.
5: I was pepper sprayed. So I'll never forget all those years later coming around to what we've accomplished now. I think back to when I was pepper sprayed at a marijuana cannabis event in Battery Park when the police were out of control. You know, so now the police are on our side, at least as far as we can tell. They're not going to be coming in and busting us like they did in the past. But we sure went through it. Right, Paul?
0: Absolutely. Steve Bloom is an organizer of the Pop Parade, stepping off at high noon from Herald Square, followed by a concert in Union Square Park. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And more national news. New York and New Mexico have something in common besides an adjective. They both host radioactive waste that's proving harder to get rid of than originally thought. In New York, the Indian Point nuclear power station sits closed and waits eventual demolition, and the state of New Mexico hosts several nuclear dumps that are scheduled to receive the demolition debris of Indian Point and several other decommissioned nuclear plants, but a kink has occurred in the plan when last week Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham of New Mexico signed a bill blocking the firm Holtec International from building an underground storage site for spent nuclear fuel. It's a big deal in New Mexico, the location of the first nuclear bomb blast, named Trinity, that happened in July of 1945, and the Los Alamos National Laboratory where the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were assembled. Nuclear research in uranium, mining has disproportionately hit indigenous people for decades with cancer and other diseases and a lack of urgency by the federal government to deal with the problem. New Mexico also is the site of a government dump for military waste and just over the border in Texas another dump was built near Laredo. Leona Morgan of the Diné or Navajo Nation is an anti-nuclear activist and community organizer. She spoke in favor of the bill at a public session before it was passed. She tells the news the bill marks a big change in New Mexico's formally welcoming attitude to the nuclear industry.
3: Last night in New Mexico, the governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, signed into law a bill that would prohibit the state of New Mexico from issuing state permits for a a consolidated interim storage facility for high-level radioactive waste. We stopped a nuclear waste dump for all of the waste from all the commercial nuclear power plants in the country from coming to New Mexico. And this is a proposal by a company called Holtec, which actually owns Indian Point, and folks should know about Holtec up there.
0: What is Holtec?
3: Holtec International is this big nuclear company that does multiple levels of nuclear activities. Basically, they self-proclaimed they have this vertical integration system where they will decommission power plants, build a nuclear waste dump in New Mexico where they'll bring all the waste, and then they're also talking about other things like reprocessing, small modular nuclear reactors, and just things that are not happening right now here in this country, but making plans as if New Mexico wants it. And so they're telling people I was on one of these Indycap meetings, the nuclear decommissioning um, citizen advisory panels for one of the plants over there. I don't know if it was Plymouth or Indian Point. Holtec International was saying, we're going to decommission your power plant in eight years. We're going to clean it all up and get the surface to be reused again by the community or whatever, however they were selling it to them. But the thing they were saying that really enraged me was, The best part of it is we have a place we're going to take this stuff and we're going to take it to New Mexico where those people want it because they want to make money from this waste. They don't look at it as waste. They look at it as opportunity because we're so downtrodden and poor and uneducated or whatever they were saying. So I got on the phone and said, hey, I'm here from New Mexico to tell you we don't want that waste and that nuclear waste will never be built. Holtec does all kinds of nuclear processing decommissioning they want to build small modular nuclear reactors and then of course this temporary dump in new mexico which is called consolidated interim storage or cis we say cis for short but that interim part is 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 laughable because the idea is they're going to store all of the waste from the different reactors across the country the nuclear commercial power plants and bring it here to New Mexico and for the interim, which could be over a hundred years, to store it until the United States figures out what to do with it permanently.
0: Morgan, who has organized events with indigenous uranium miners as far afield as Congo in Africa, says New Mexico was cursed with some of the richest deposits of the radioactive element.
3: Uranium occurs in the world everywhere. Somehow, in New Mexico, Mount Taylor is one of our sacred mountains to many of the indigenous nations. It was mined for uranium, the Black Hills, Grand Canyon. As an indigenous woman here, knowing this story of the Trinity bomb, all of the things that have happened, the church truck spill of 1979, that was not addressed. You know, when we compare these things to Three Mile Island and how folks in the East Coast are treated differently and white communities are treated differently when it comes to waste and contamination and healthcare. So in New Mexico, we're a majority people of color state. A lot of our state is very culturally intact. There's more than 20 indigenous nations living pretty much in our original homelands. This is very different than any other place in the country. Out in the West, many of the indigenous people, we live where our ancestors lived. For us to be working on these issues, in fact, just to bring it back to Holtec, the reason I work on this issue is because colonization, it wasn't just something that happened when the United States was formed. It goes way back. Things like the railroad, all of these laws and, and ways that were to contain our Mother Earth and to uh, divide up and put all these invisible lines on her.
0: And Morgan adds the days of New Mexico welcoming waste from other states is coming to an end.
3: We are tired of being a national sacrifice zone. We've been working for years and years to address this issue, and we've been saying we don't want to be dumped on. It's not just about fighting it, fighting the system. It's about educating each other about what does this mean that we have radioactive waste here and what happens if there was some kind of leak what does that mean for the people of new york city so that's for me not my problem over here but i think around the world it's everybody's problem
0: leona morgan of the Diné or navajo nation is an anti-nuclear activist and community organizer Meanwhile, in New York, Holtec International has been busy in the Empire State. The company is responsible for decommissioning the Indian Point nuclear power plant and announced last month it will resume dumping radioactive wastewater containing the isotope known as Tritium into the Hudson River as early as this August. The Hudson River Sloop Clearwater Environmental Director is Mana Joe Green.
4: Indian Point is about 35 miles north of New York City on the east side of the Hudson River. It operated for more than 40 years as a nuclear power plant, but it also generated more than 40 years of highly radioactive nuclear waste. That waste has been stored in what are called fuel pools so that they could cool off a little bit. They're still very highly radioactive and hot in temperature. But sitting in the fuel pools, they have cooled off enough that Holtec is allowed to move them to what's called dry cask storage, a metal canister inside of a concrete cask on a concrete pad. Instead of water cooled, they're air cooled. There's a that process is taking place as part of the decommissioning of Indian Point they have been slowly but surely moving the fuel rods out of the pools into dry cast storage. In the past, they have at times discharged radioactive water, which is treated, but the treatment does not remove all of the radioactivity. It can remove A good percentage of the heavier isotopes that have very long half-lives, but it can't remove tritium. Tritiated water cannot be distinguished from water. They just let the tritium be discharged into nearby waterways, and in the case of Indian Point, that is the Hudson River.
0: When they say it's just water, it goes through your body rather quickly, it's not going to go into your bones the way you cesium or strontium might, it won't be in there long enough to do any damage.
4: The common understanding in the 1970s, when the current regulations from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission were put into place, tritium was really dismissed as a problem. But there's been a wealth of research and peer-reviewed papers, et cetera, showing that that's not the case, that, in fact, tritium absolutely can cause health problems. In a sense, it's more of a threat. It moves into the cells so easily. Certainly, strontium-90 and cesium and other larger Heavier radioactive isotopes are also a very serious problem. To a certain extent, those can get filtered out. Holtec has stated that they're going to be discharging close to a million gallons of radioactive water from the two fuel pools that are still being emptied. As soon as August of this year, There is a very important piece of legislation proposed by State Senator Harcom and Assemblymember Dana Levenberg to prevent discharge of radioactive water into New York waterways. In addition, both Westchester County and Rockland County have recently passed memorializing resolutions opposing Holtec's plan to discharge the radioactive water from the fuel pools into the Hudson River.
0: What do they do with a million gallons of contaminated water?
4: Well, the radioactive fuel rods are being stored on site in the casks. There are two possibilities, and perhaps more, for storing the water, and that would be to leave it in the fuel pool. The fuel pools have leaked. And in fact, leaked into the groundwater and the groundwater under the plant. I want to just put in a word, if I could, for the precautionary principle. When you have pollution or radioactivity contained, releasing it out into the environment, be that the water or the air or pouring it into the ground, all of those should be prevented and can be. And that's what we're asking to change the plan and to keep it contained, at least for, say, 50 years.
0: Manage Joe Green is Environmental Director for the Hudson River Sloop Clearwater. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul D'Urienzo. And the recent balloon sightings have transfixed Americans with talk of UFOs, the former military term for what are now being called Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, or UAPs, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre felt moved to publicly deny the objects were from outer space.
4: before I turn it over to the Admiral. I just wanted to make sure we address this from the White House. I know there have been questions and and concerns about this, but there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity (laughs) with these recent takedowns. Again, there is no indication of aliens or terrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Wanted to make sure that the American people knew that, all of you knew that, uh, and it was important for us to say that from here because we've been hearing a lot about it. Um I, I I'm not you tell us i I'm just you know I loved e t the movie but i'm I'm just going to leave it there um. uFOs
0: entered the public imagination in the years following nineteen forty seven when an object first reported as unearthly in nature, accompanied by stories of recovered extraterrestrial bodies, fell to earth near Roswell, New Mexico. The military later said the remains were from a weather balloon. A representative of the Fund for UFO Research is Rob Swatek. He's been studying UFOs for more than two decades. He says the balloons can't be UFOs because the military was able to shoot them down.
6: I'm not sure we're dealing with the traditional UFOs. Right? I'm quite prepared to believe these are. Whether gadgets or Chinese devices or Iranian devices or Russian devices or something that have been floating around. They could be the real thing. OK, so what we, we don't really know. No one's making the differentiation. They don't want to go into the real UFO phenomenon that's had tens of thousands of sightings over 70 years all over the world,
0: including military installations and top-secret facilities and stuff like that. Wasn't there recently a report based on the UFO sightings, whatever the new name they give to them are, past few years but previous to what's been happening in the last few weeks, and which they said that, They had sort of narrowed it down to a smaller number of sightings that were absolutely unverifiable. You are correct. The intelligence community came out. The
6: second report a month or so ago, and they said they had now 510 cases, and they couldn't explain 46% of them, a rather large number. Those objects, they haven't given us any details about, but they've apparently ruled out balloons and all the obvious other explanations that can be used for these
0: people terrified by the new scientific discoveries of that era, jets, nuclear weapons, things like that that never existed before, terrifying people, making people see things, the space, the rise of science fiction, movies, and things like that. Why isn't it that kind of thing? The
6: best sightings have been from unimpeachable
0: witnesses, or have been radar pickups, or things that have been seen
6: from 30 or 40 feet away. They're not just vague lights in the sky. We have the rise of the modern day phenomenon, which you are correct. We can find correlating cases in earlier decades. But for simplicity, I just say the modern UFO phenomenon began in 1947 when a pilot sighted nine objects near Mount Rainier in Washington State. And that sighting has been parsed 10 ways from Sunday, and no one can really explain what he saw. There are many, many, many more cases like that. The best ones are close-up sightings from mere feet away. Sometimes they leave traces on the ground. Sometimes they reflect radar waves, and planes have been able to chase them to no avail. Sometimes they affect people physically. This is a real phenomenon and that phenomenon hasn't
0: been explained. How is that different from these at least three or four years now we've seen this uptick? Mm -hmm. The DOD felt compelled to write a report and where they found almost half of them were still unexplained. We had this incredible event in 2017 with uh,
6: Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Kane coming out with this article in the New York Times This centered around an incident that occurred in 2004 with the, the Nimitz aircraft carrier and the pilots who saw these strange so-called tic-tac objects. That re-stimulated interest, at least in the general public and in the media, to look into what, what had always been going on, at least since World War II. And we had these FLIR videos, which we've all seen hundreds of times, that resulted from the pilots taking these photographs of the objects. So that got Congress involved and they put the National Defense Authorization Act, it came out with that, and they put stipulations in there that now the government had to look into these things and report back to Congress every year on what they were finding. We've had this uptick since 2017 now, this renewed interest and focus on the subject that had always been going on.
0: All of a sudden, we have a much more worldly, highly educated population that isn't as easily bamboozled by fake lights in the sky.
6: When these sightings in the wake of World War II were seen, the first reaction of most people was not that these objects were spaceships from another planet or aliens. The feeling basically was that they were top-secret test devices of either the U.S. or the Soviet Union. When they did a early Gallup polls on the subject in the late 1940s, the extraterrestrial explanation was very low down. One percent, two percent of the respondents thought it was that. So people didn't jump to this, this hypothesis. When the military looked into these sightings and came out with top-secret documents back in the 40s, that have since been declassified, their conclusions were rather astounding. They did consider the fact that they could be objects from Russia or objects from our own arsenal, and they ruled those out in their documents saying they weren't U.S. test devices, and they had astounding paragraphs in there like, these devices seem to be have an aeronautical prowess that's beyond our current technology, and they didn't think they came from Russia, and that's where they left it. The top people in the military establishment back in the late 40s, did not know what was causing these sightings that were being seen by their own military pilots and outmaneuvered their aircraft. They flew circles around them almost literally with impunity, just like they do today. There's no difference.
0: Right. And I think what they try and say now, it could have been light reflections, radar reflections, like a reflection seems to move faster than the speed of sight. If you see a reflection... On a radar screen, it might seem like it's moving very fast, but it's really just a reflection. that's closer than it seems, so it's not moving as fast as you think it is. People who man
6: radar scopes, if they're fooled by reflections off objects, then we're in trouble with flying in airplanes because then they can't differentiate between real civilian aircraft and reflections. But that's not the case. The civilian air traffic controllers can easily distinguish between anomalous propagation and reflection from the surfaces of real aircraft. They guide tens of thousands of aircraft to safe landings in the U.S. every day. And they're not fooled by birds or they're not fooled by odd reflections on radar scopes. They know what these look like and they can rule them out. We'd be in trouble. You wouldn't want to fly or I wouldn't want to fly in air- airplanes because we we'd think, oh my God, these people don't know what they're looking at on their radar scopes. They might guide us into another airplane.
0: What is your assessment of these, the spate of shoot-downs in the last few days, which is quite interesting because they never did shoot them down before? Correct.
6: True UFOs, whatever they are, don't seem to be capable of being shot down as easily as these things were. I have two opinions. The recent objects are seem to be man-made devices of some kind. <laughs> You're right. They haven't identified them yet, but they were easily shot down. They seem to be some kind of metallic objects constructed by humans. The true UFO phenomenon, in my opinion, has a non-human source. I don't know where, I don't know why, I don't know what, but I don't think it's it's a non-human intelligence. And we've been dealing with this now for, as you noted, probably well before World War II. Mm. But we continue to be bedeviled by these kind of sightings, the true UFO sightings. People don't laugh at this stuff
0: anymore. It used to be a joke. It ain't a joke anymore.
6: It never has been, Paul. It's always been serious. When people see a thing hovering over their house and it's cigar shaped or it's the shape of a disc or a saucer or something like that, they're not seeing a bird. It's not a balloon. It's not a star. They're terrified by these things. Military people see them as well as average citizens all across this country and the world. UFO gets four to 5,000 cases per year of UFOs, and they can't explain maybe 15 to 20 percent of those. So that's a rather high number of cases. And the objects behave in particular ways. They don't fly like airplanes. I have to deal with what we have at hand, and that's the seeming evidence of some kind of odd craft that have been behaving with impunity in this country and other countries around the world for 75 years at least. And we haven't come to grips with that yet.
0: Rob Switek is a representative of the Fund for UFO Research. And the National Weather Service says it launches about 60,000 high-altitude balloons every year. They're used to study global weather, usually higher in the atmosphere than the objects recently downed by the US military fluette. In 2022, the Pentagon reported that sightings of unidentified aerial phenomenon, UAPs, tripled to about 510, the largest number ever. Another 768 were reported in Canada. More than half of the US sightings remain a mystery. And that's the news for Sunday, April 30th, 2023. The news was produced by this reporter. You can hear the news Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Radio Network, PRN Live. Or you can always get it at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.